Hey Francis, do you like protecting yourself online? No. What's some little nerd going to do to me online? No one can mess with the Alpha Dog 601. That's what I called myself after winning a particularly intense game of Call of Duty back in 2017. Why is there a 601 on the end? Uh, there are already 600 other Alpha Dogs. It's quite popular amongst the Alpha male community. I'm sure. Well, going online without a VPN is like leaving your laptop open whilst you go to the toilet in a coffee shop. Coffee always does that to For me. For once in your life, can you just do the bloody advert like a real alpha, like me? What, mate? Chill out. I always make sure to use ExpressVPN because hackers can sell your data online for as much as $1,000 a pop. Even a 12-year-old can do it which is one of the many reasons I don't trust kids. That's why we use ExpressVPN and Trigonometry. ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Hackers can't steal your sensitive data. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. I have ExpressVPN on my phone because it's dead easy to use. All you need to do is fire up the app and with one tap of the button, Alpha Dog 601 sleeps easy knowing his data is safe. We use ExpressVPN on all our devices, phone, laptops, tablets, and computers. It protects you on the go. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash trigger. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash trigger, and you get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash trigger. Hello and welcome to a very special live episode of Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Doesn't get any more fascinating than the guest we have for you today. Without much further ado, she's the journalist behind the lockdown files. Isabel Oakshaw, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. And you've had a very busy week, so we appreciate you coming and sitting down for 45 no, minutes with us to chat Thank and then you. answering some questions from our audience. Really appreciate it. You know, it's funny because I was talking to a friend of mine last night. We were WhatsApping back and forth. and we were, <laughs> Dangerous we, thing to do, <laughs> especially when I'm around. <laughs> well, that's, that's, and, and that was basically how the conversation ended up. We, after a while, we kind of read back our slightly spicy messages. And we were like, well, let's make sure whoever writes ghost writes our next book is not Isabel Oakshaw. <laughs> and the point I'm making is you have put, you know, something on the line there in order to get this story out. So what was it about the messages that you saw with Matt Hancock, the former health secretary, that made you think, you know what, this is worth it? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, of course, I've put something on the line. I've put a lot on the line, actually. I mean, there's been a lot of flak flying. Um, the reality is if you detonate a nuclear bomb, there's going to be some radiation. And most likely, quite a bit of it is going to blow in your direction if we're talking about the world of politics. So that I knew that this would be pretty explosive. Um, I knew that there would be a price to pay for me. Um, there are different bits of that price to pay. There's a there's a legal risk that I've taken. Um, after all, I did breach a confidentiality undertaking. That's not something I, I take lightly or do flippantly. Um, there's also the risk associated with people, you know, feeling that I probably am not going to be the most trustworthy person to write their books. That's That's obviously something that I have to take into account. But above all of that is what I felt was the overwhelming public interest in the content of this material um, and you know in the end uh, I was willing and am willing to take a knock to my reputation to have people disparaging me to have people say that I to, to impugn my motives which has been plenty of uh, in order to get this material out there because what we see here is the real time detail of who was saying what and when around the most momentous decisions, decisions that affected the lives of every single person in this country. And similar decisions were being taken all over the world as countries locked down. So really, the UK, as a result of these WhatsApp files, as Fraser Nelson has said, uh, is the first country to have kind of drawn back the curtain on what was really going on. And what have we seen, Isabel? Because 
Uh, look, Francis and I both not happy about lockdowns. We supported the first one because we were told it's going to be a couple of weeks and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Okay, let's go along with it. And before we know it, we're like two years into a lockdown and blah, yeah. blah, blah, right? However, there's a lot of people who might look at the things that have come out as a result of your revelations and kind of go, well, okay, look, the fact that kids were forced to wear masks because Boris couldn't be bothered to have an argument with Nicola, yeah, that's a bit, that's yeah. wrong, bad. And most of the rest of it, isn't it just government incompetence, politicians making stupid jokes, the kinds of you that you and I would make in a WhatsApp group. So what what have you revealed exactly that people should care about if they currently don't? Yeah, that's funny. You know, I find this this question has come up quite a lot and I'm kind of left wondering what more do you want, guys? Blood? You know, what is it that you might have been expecting to find there? I feel that people may be hope that there might be some kind of gigantic conspiracy you know that we well, there's might, a lot of people who have yeah, that. Yeah. Right. you know <laughs> that we might reveal that you know there was a secret plan to kind of kill off the elderly or there was some kind of bill gates thing to inject everybody with microchips hancock did actually joke about that but it was a very definitely a joke obviously um and you know i feel that there were a lot of people hoping um that what was going on during this time was something totally extraordinary and unexpected. Mm -hmm. And in reality, what was going on was the very exaggerated everyday business of government, which mm -hmm. is full of cock up and uh, far more cock up than conspiracy, mm -hmm. really. Uh, but what have we learned? Well, we can point to any number of a kind of specific revelations, which I actually think are very important. You know, the over the weekend, The Telegraph published details of messages from Matt Hancock, between him and his political aide, in which they discussed, and I quote, deploying the variant oh, to, yeah. and I quote, frighten the pants off people. Now, this is an insight, provides us with an extraordinary insight into the mindset of a very, very tiny group of people who had seized an unprecedented level of power. So what you see here, in a sense, is a kind of um, insight into the psychology uh, of what happens when a, a small group of people uh, take power, which they did, they seized effectively an unprecedented level of control over our everyday lives. And they, they essentially did so in a pseudo-democratic fashion. And we can discuss quite how democratic it really was, but they used emergency legislation to do that. And what do they then do with that power? And we've had since politicians coming out, Jacob Rees-Mogg yesterday, one of our, who was a cabinet minister at the time, saying, actually, you know, I was in the cabinet at the time. I didn't know about a lot of this stuff that was going on, evidence that uh, influenced critical decisions, because it was all ha concentrated in the hands of four people, effectively, the prime minister, the chancellor at the time, Rishi Sunak, Michael Gove, who's kept very much in the shadows. And I always thought he was up to all forms of no good. Uh, he, you know, when a politician of that level of influence is very quiet, it's a bit like when kids disappear and, you know, they're, they're somewhere upstairs and you kind of know that they've definitely got your makeup bag, you know, and they're busy smearing it all over everywhere. Um, so Michael Gove played a pivotal part in all of this uh, and, and Matt Hancock himself. Um, and those four people just were... were in an extraordinary position of power and responsibility, by the way. And I think we can have a lot of sympathy um, for the people on whose shoulders all of this rested. You know, you said um, we were talking earlier about whether it was the right thing to lock down first time round. I mean, absolutely. You know, I, I never uh, felt that that was unreasonable, you know, in the face of a, an unprecedented threat. For me, I think there are very, very serious question marks over whether we needed to do so repeatedly for the best part of off and on two years in a way that had we now no devastating collateral damage uh, on our economy, uh, but much more importantly, uh, on people's health in, in other respects and on, on our children. Isabel, now I'm someone who was, I was in, in favour of the first lockdown like Constantine, but the more I saw this pattern repeat itself, the more I realised where we were going to end up, particularly financially. However, I have come to accept begrudgingly that I'm in the minority. Mm. And there's a lot of government ministers who would say, well, look, you may think this way, I think this way, but the reality is 65% of the public, according to recent polls, don't think that way. Uh, yeah, and it, I find that really interesting, actually. <laughs> yeah. it is, don't it, we all? It's just really weird. I, I've kind of 
come to the conclusion that people like being told what to do. Mm. Um, you know, it's why a lot of people just keep going back to prison, because presumably in prison you don't have to actually decide anything. You know, you've got your regime, you've got your routine, you're told when to get up, you're told when to exercise, you're told when to go to bed, you're fed something, you know, you've got all your basic facilities there and that's it, that's the end of your responsibility. I think some people perhaps quite like that abrogation of, of responsibility for their own existence. I find it pretty warped personally, I think, but maybe, maybe some people's lives are, are not quite as richly rewarding as, as our own. And so, I don't know, maybe they felt less of a loss at being bossed around in that way. I mean, part of it was also, let's be fair, that, let's be fair, that the government put, made them absolutely terrified with their propaganda. And then gave them money. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. I mean, you know, focus groups and polling will show um, that terrified people are grateful if you protect them. Um, <laughs> so if you've then put vast resources into terrifying a population, it should be no surprise that that terrified population thanks you for looking after them as you present mm. it to them at the time. And that fear factor has had a, a long hangover, hasn't it? I mean, mm. I still see people walking outside with masks on. And maybe it's a bad reflection on me. There's something inside me that just really kind of rails against that. I feel sorry for them, um, but I also can't understand why they think that that's going to make any difference to their existence. Um, and, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the things that spurred me on on this mm. project um, is because there's, of course, been a lot of criticism, and there always is. I work, you know, in the intersection of politics and media. I'm not a neutral reporter or a neutral commentator. I'm a right of centre uh, broadcaster and commentator, and that in itself attracts quite a lot of flack. But one of the things that's really kept me going, as it were, um, is the absolute flood of letters and emails and approaches on Twitter from ordinary people who say, thank you for exposing all of this stuff. We knew, we thought this was what was going on, and now we know that our suspicions were, were justified. Um, and, you know, some of the letters that I'm getting are so moving, profoundly mm. moving, you know, particularly uh, the mother of a 16-year-old boy who took his own life uh, during lockdown. I wrote about her and him in The Telegraph last weekend. And, you know, these, um, these were very disempowered individuals. It was all very well um, for our leaders in their lovely big houses in leafy parts of London with all the luxuries that made lockdown at the very worst bearable and for many better off people really quite pleasurable. Um, it was all very well for those people. But what about the single mum living on a rough council estate in Bootle with a five-year-old as this lady had uh, who has ADHD uh, I'm picturing that she was in some kind of high-rise block or something like that. Anyway, they have no garden. Uh, the only place was the local play park. And that was then uh, cordoned off mm -hmm. by overzealous mm -hmm. council officials, as we now know, entirely unnecessarily, in my view. Uh, it was soon quite obvious that the virus wasn't going to be transmitted in uh, play parks, really. Certainly not children. You know, they weren't particularly vulnerable to it. So in desperation, this mother, fearing that there would be more lockdowns, quite rightly as it turned out, she moved house and took her family up to the northeast, where she was unable to get her teenage son uh, into a school. By then, of course, homeschooling had become a lazy default for uh, local authorities. They couldn't be bothered to find a place for her son. This lady was not empowered. She had no agency. You know, if somebody didn't find a school place for my children, I'd be creating merry hell, but she didn't have the means to create merry hell. And so her son was isolated and became increasingly depressed. He put on weight because he was no longer playing football at school. And the long and the short, and it is a very long and sorry tale, is that he hung himself. One day he took himself off saying that he was going to go shopping, getting pick up a few things for tea, and he never came home. And, you know, she said that he had become so paranoid because of the fear campaign mm. that he would not even open his bedroom window for fear of the virus creeping in and getting him. Well, look, something's gone profoundly wrong if children are reacting to a government propaganda campaign in that way. And, you know, I am not a crier. I rarely shed tears, but I genuinely was 
deeply upset by her story because I know not least in itself it is a terrible story um, but because it's replicated in so many different ways across Britain and I'm having so many of these messages people died and of course and and there are many people who suffered in, in many ways and this is one of the things we talked on the show about extensively but Isabel and, it, and this isn't to take anything away from what you've just said because I think it's really important mm. but I guess Francis point is what is there in these lockdown files that will convince those people who don't agree with the three of us that they should? Perhaps nothing, because I think there's something wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to, good to know you came in the spirit of persuasion, Isabel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, if you can't be persuaded by the content of these lockdown files that this was just so profoundly wrong, what is going to persuade you? What more does it take? You know, we've got tens of thousands of children who never went back to school. We've got a broken NHS. We've got an economy in smithereens. What more evidence do you need? Do you really still think it was a good idea to shut society down for that long when we had a vaccine and when the mortality rates for this condition were not particularly high for anybody who wasn't already above the age of life expectancy? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that came to light in the lockdown files, one of the things that actually I found profoundly shocking was the quality of evidence that was being used to the government by the government to justify their decisions. So I think um, I think another point is mm. as much what is not discussed as what is. Mm. And it's important to point out, and many critics quite reasonably have done, that what we have here is only Matt Hancock's text WhatsApp messages with the people he chose to share uh, with me. So yeah. there may have been conversations with other individuals who, who he didn't want to share with me. And, you know, he was the health secretary, mm. so his focus was on health. He wasn't Rishi Sunak, whose WhatsApp with lots of other people might have revealed a very uh, different story. But at no point in this 2.3 million word dump of information, which the Telegraph's team of eight people have brilliantly spent the last two months picking through, is there any sense of Matt Hancock, and remember he was one of the only the four that were taking all these critical decisions, worrying about the collateral damage of the policies he was pursuing, or really troubling over the um, cost-benefit mm. analysis? Mm. You know, he was not continually saying, well, hang on a minute, if we do this, Yes, it may ostensibly and in the short term be deemed to be saving lives, but what about the lives further down the line? And in fact, there was a minister, a junior health minister, James Bethel, who did actually flag these things up uh, on a number of occasions. Quite interestingly, he talked a lot about what was happening, for example, with clinical trials, you know, that they basically juddered to a halt for anything other than COVID vaccines. Well, that really matters. You know, if we've mm. stopped investigating and trying to find new cancer treatments, new treatments for Alzheimer's, new treatments for all the other desperately awful diseases that ruin lives for the best part of two years, that research stops. That's a serious matter. Mm. Um, and to give James Bethel his due, he pushed on that quite repeatedly. Um, but Matt Hancock didn't seem to have much interest. I think he paid lip service to, to that. But to be fair, probably didn't have the bandwidth for anything more than his immediate objective. Well, that was one of my principal concerns throughout the pandemic, really, is I don't remember a single time anyone standing up at a prime minister's press conference and saying, how many people are these policies going to kill? Because if you don't know the answer to that question, how can you possibly make the decision to lock down? So I think it's a really bad look. And although they've done it to me, I don't particularly want to do it to them for journalists to criticize other journalists. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, look, I think that there were a few of us on the skeptical side mm -hmm. who watched those press conferences in some despair at the lack of um, skepticism, the, the lack of critical um, approach towards the policies that were being unveiled. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that very few journalists did anything other than, in a sense, practically goad the government on to yes. go ever harder. Mm. Now, I, I worked in the lobby for many years as a Sunday Times political editor. I know the psychology mm. of the political press pack, and I've been part of it. Um, and it's always to get the 
the kind of more extreme and the worst story. It's not actually your agenda as a political journalist in the lobby is not actually producing good. It's producing the best possible story, which is usually the worst thing happening mm. um, <laughs> or trying to get resignations or something. Mm. Um, and I'm, I've been part of that. So I understand how it works. Mm. You know, the, the desire to get a scalp or the desire to say more bad things are coming. Mm. Um, and I think it warps the approach. You know, it's not a it's not a, a, a trigonometry style mm -hmm discussion you know looking at the ups and downs that on the one hand and on the other it's boom 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 and off we go to file our copy um and i'm not abrogating my responsibility for having been part of that in the past but those journalists did not ask the questions that for example julia hartley brewer was asking on talk radio day in day out you know and she was quite a lone voice mm -hmm. And Isabel, uh, Douglas Murray made the point when we were talking, when we did an interview with him during the pandemic, and he said part of the problem is the fact that a lot of journalists don't have a scientific background, so they're not able to interrogate the data properly. Well, and I certainly don't have a scientific <laughs> background, as people repeatedly might remind me. <laughs> um, and, and there was a lot of that, wasn't there? Anyone who criticised anything to mm. do with the response you would get a pile on saying, well, you're not a doctor, you're yeah. not an epidemiologist, I'm not taking any lessons from you. You don't necessarily have to be mm. an epidemiologist um, to work out that shutting up a lot of people, locking them down, only allowing them out for an hour of exercise and threatening to criminalise them for sitting in a public park mm. or sunbathing, as happened, or going for a walk on their own in the, in the hills, is going to have a pretty awful effect on everybody's psychology and on the businesses that are shut. You know, that that isn't, it doesn't take an expert to work that out. And if you've turned the whole of the NHS, if you've pivoted it to being a COVID emergency service, then probably other conditions are going to suffer. And Isabel, we're looking at and analysing the decisions and the behaviour of government, essentially, with these lockdown files. What percentage of this do you think are just mistakes, which any government can make, particularly in that time, ranking competence, and also as well, something a little bit more sinister, which I got a little bit of with those messages, which is a sneering contempt, if I'm honest. I love the way you said ranking competence. <laughs> it just kind of rolled off your tongue there. He's um, been practicing that I know, I know. for a long it's time. It's just a phrase we use quite a lot, a yeah, lot isn't I'm, it? I'm learning how to drive. It's something that I've learned <laughs> many times by my instructor. Um, there's a mixture of all of that, isn't mm. there? You know, I've always wanted to believe and I've generally believed that politicians start out genuinely wanting to do good. Maybe that's mm. a bit naive of me. But, you know, having worked around politicians for nearly two decades, mm. you know, most of them do want to change things for the better. They're coming from a position of wanting to try and make people's lives better. Mm. Um, and I, I have no doubt that, um, that the then health secretary, Matt Hancock, was desperately trying to contain the crisis in the way he saw best fit with the evidence that he had available at the time to begin with. Now, after that, I think that there was some loss of perspective, mm -hmm. um, some, uh, frankly, a near complete loss of any sense of proportionality. And you can imagine why that happened. You know, if you've created the conditions in which you are basically in a bunker um, and normal life has all but disappeared, then of course judgments are going to be warped. I'm not saying I would have done brilliantly in those mm. circumstances. Which one of us would have? It's always easier to carp from the sidelines. I'm certain I wouldn't have done many of the things they did. I mean, there are certain things that still really rankle with me, in particular the then Home Secretary, Priti Patel, actively encouraging people in this country to snoop and spy on their neighbours and to report them for breaches of COVID restrictions. Mm. I thought that that coming from a Home Secretary of a Conservative government was utterly unforgivable. I thought that it encouraged a grotesque culture in this country, which had real consequences. You know, I had two police officers come to my door on Easter Day 2021. You know, what a woeful use of police resources sending two cops to check that I was self-isolating. Mm. You know, my partner had the a police turn up twice at his property. 
these stories are everywhere, aren't they? Rachel Johnson, the Prime Minister's own sister, wrote for The Telegraph a few days ago about how the cops turned up at her property. You know, I, I just think this is awful. And generally, they were acting on tip-offs. You know, what kind of country is this? Is that what kind of country any government should be promoting? Mm. Well, I, 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 I mean, you're making a lot of good points. I, your colleague uh, at The Telegraph, uh, or temporary colleague, I should say, um, Cheryl Jacobs, yes. uh, she wrote a very interesting article uh, recently in which she essentially talked about how rather than looking at this for, as a sort of go a, the government getting more power and mm. getting power drunk, actually what they were responding to, and that's why I made the point about the journalist, is imagine you are Boris Johnson or Matt Hancock and you're like looking out at a journalist lobby who are all demanding harder, deeper, faster yeah. lockdowns. Yeah. And the polling all shows, I mean, yeah. if you still believe polling, that's what the public want. Yeah. What, what are you supposed to do? Well, um, let me provide a, um, a really simple answer, and it is to provide leadership. That's what you're supposed <laughs> to do. You know, you're not supposed to just respond to a being mob, are you? you? You're there because you're a leader. You're there to do better than that. Mm. And you're right. And the most stunning absence of leadership for me was watching their capitulation to Nicola Sturgeon. And that, I think, is such a, I mean, it's a bit of a pointy head sort of political um, mm. obsession, but it is really interesting. And if tell you can, people who are not familiar about yeah, what Yeah, let me explain happened. that throughout these messages, these WhatsApp messages, there is a continual long-running anxiety about the devolved administrations, mm -hmm. in particular what was going on in Scotland, where Nicola Sturgeon, who is a formidable politician, whatever you think of what she wants to do, which is <laughs> namely break up the union, she is a very, very good political operator. And she was very often one step ahead of Downing Street and, you know, very keen to be one step ahead. And that actually distorted the way they responded because they were continually worrying, what's Nicola going to do next? How's Nicola going to exploit this? Is Nicola going to leak the details of this conversation or that conversation? It had a really kind of detrimental, I think, really negative effect on the overall mm. pandemic response. But I think also, actually, the government was quite right to be worried about what Nicola Sturgeon might do. And I think they, in their defence, they tried very hard to work together with the devolved administrations. Mm. But in the end, you know, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP had a, a, an agenda of their own. And what was that agenda? Well, her agenda is to promote the cause of independence. She was also, I'm not saying she wasn't trying to save lives first and foremost, but she also allied with that is what she's there to do, her core offer, which mm. is break up the United Kingdom. She's not suddenly going to forget that. And Isabel, but I, I really want to talk about the masking situations in schools. Oh, yeah. Because they did back down to her. And the only reason they backed down to her is because they were scared of getting into an argument or a fight with her, really. Yes, I mean, they didn't want, you know, I'm going to be paraphrasing here because I can't remember exactly what was said, but effectively, Nicola Sturgeon had announced one policy which involved a lot of mask wearing in schools. The UK government didn't really think that there was much of a case for that, but they also thought that maybe it wouldn't do much harm either. They didn't really want a row or a split with Nicola Sturgeon because if they'd gone a different way, they would have been forced to say either she's got it wrong or you know we're gonna have to accept that we're doing it anyway just to yeah. avoid that kind of political spat um, and they just the path of least resistance that's what they took the path of least resistance i hate masks i think that they are insidious i think the idea that they do no harm is is a false one actually um, I think they do all sorts of harm. I want to be able to see pe people's faces, please. I think that's the society that we live in. And you know, if people really want to go around with a piece of grubby cloth over their face, which does very, very little, if it's unless it's a kind of medical grade thing, then perhaps in a free and liberal society, we should let them do so, just as that we let people go around with very flimsy clothes on or whatever else they may want to wear. They, you know, spiky. She looked at me there. <laughs> <laughs> that could be your next episode. <laughs> Where um, we lose all of our subscribers. So, so look, if, they, if people want to wear a mask, well, mm. I, I don't like it, but, you know, maybe that's up to them. 
Um, but to say that there's no harm in forcing mm. children to mm. do so, I think is just it's just untrue. You mm. know, I, my son was made to wear masks, you know, like every other child is a teenager at the time. And there's pictures of him, school photograph, they've all got a mask on. It's grotesque. And it made no practical sense because, you know, a former guest of ours, Catherine Burble Singh, who runs a school, she we was like, love Catherine. <laughs> we all do, of course. She's brilliant. But she was like, have you met kids? You, yeah. you think you're going to force teenagers to wear masks all day in the classroom? That is not how this is going to go down. <laughs> and, and she's a strict headmistress yeah. oh, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so it just it seemed impractical. Isabel, I want to uh, move on slightly somewhat to the COVID inquiry. Yes, that is that's now really important. Well, it is really important. And I have to say... Or rather, it should be. <laughs> well, quite. Because until the, the, the revelations that you've been uh, at, the, at the head of with this... I have to say, I think the consensus among people who think like us has been, yeah. they're not. It's going to take bloody ages. It's not going to find anything. It's going to yeah. be. I mean, it's going to be like no one knows who killed JFK. No one knows what happened with Iraq. We're not. We're not going to find anything yeah. out. Was that also your view? And is that part of the rationale for releasing these? This is a, these WhatsApps? one of, the, if not the key driving force for doing this, because, of course, if the COVID inquiry was about to wrap up or if it could realistically be expected to conclude, for example, by the end of this year or even, let's say, by the end of next year, if we could have confidence and faith that that is going to happen, then there would have been a much greater uh, ethical dilemma over whether or not to release these messages because it could arguably have been much more difficult to defend the public interest in doing so if they were all going to be examined along with all the other messages and evidence that needs to be taken into account by a judge in an objective, you know, proper fashion, um, then that would perhaps be best left to that process. The problem is that the COVID inquiry has an insanely expansive remit. I've read it. I'm amazed that very few journalists have actually bothered to do this. But if you actually sit and read the remit, you know, I could say that it would take at least a year to cover each area. Um, there's about 30 areas. I mean, this poor judge is being asked to cover every single aspect of the inquiry. And and some should also be in there. If you're going to go for everything, then also there should be a, a, more, more areas wow. covered. I think the only way to manage this is to pair it right back in the way that the Swedes did. They produced, they, they got their inquiry underway quickly. They've already produced the report. They did it efficiently. They didn't try to do everything. They paired it back to the key lessons to be learned. And that's what we should do. Um, and, you know, if that were to happen, then I probably wouldn't have done what I've done here and put these messages in the public domain. But I have no confidence in the time frame for that process. There's no deadline, by the way. Nobody should be deceived about this. There is no deadline. Well, it sounds then pretty much like unless more stuff comes out of the nails, unless more people... I hope it having, does. Well, quite, because... Um, I, I just don't think we're going to get to the bottom of it the way that things are currently set up. No, but then ordinary people are not really, they, they don't really have the capability, the resources to kind of sift through the information. Neither so, do I, to be I honest. I mean, no. who does? You know, look, we couldn't, in the process of writing Matt's book, you know, Matt and I didn't have the resources to go through 2.3 million messages. You know, that is not any kind of small undertaking. It took Telegraph eight people full-time two months mm. to go through it all, cross-refing it with graphs and what's in the public domain and so on. Huge operation. Well, you think that's a tiny fraction of the overall COVID evidence. Mm. You know, how are we supposed to approach this? And yet, and yet it is so important that some attempt is made. So pair it back, give it a realistic time frame mm. and get on with it and stop hiring masses of lawyers to protect vested interests. These lawyers are on contracts that last five years or more. That gives you some indication of how long we're going to be here. Yeah. Can we do the podcast again when it's recorded? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm booking in now. Yeah. <laughs> and what was he like, Matt Hancock? Because there's a lot of people who are very upset and very angry with him, quite rightly so in my mm. opinion. But he's still a human being. I think that, you know, the, there's a lot of people who dress him up as a villain of the piece, unthinking, uncaring, 
narcissistic, no, I, I etc. I don't think he's a monster any more than I'm a monster. Mm. Um, I think he's highly capable, highly intelligent. I found him really good to work with, by and large. Very, very good manager. Um, mm. Phenomenally hardworking. And I love working with clever people. You know, he's a very, very able person. Um, so that's that those are the good things that i want to say i don't <laughs> you're the politician now <laughs> that's it it's not yeah fair enough that yeah. sounds like damning with faint praise i i don't i've never wanted this to be about matt hancock as a bad guy it, mm. it's so much bigger than that isn't it and, and it's not about me being the good guy or the bad guy either mm. although there's been a lot of that but really guys it isn't about me Mm. And it isn't about him. Look at the material mm. and make your mind up as to whether, on balance, we are better off knowing it. I mm. believe overwhelmingly that we are. And it's as simple as that. You've really. made me feel somewhat sorry for him, actually, mm -hmm. because I'm sitting here thinking, well, what if they release Boris Johnson's messages? I imagine there's some, some good <laughs> stuff in there. Right? To be honest, you yeah. better, mate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's, you, you, we've got like a little tiny window into this bigger picture yeah. and Matt Hancock. Yeah. You know, he was at the center, of course, to a large extent, but still. And you mentioned your own role in this and the way that you've been in the spotlight, which I have to say, maybe I'm probably naive and stupid, but has surprised me the way people have come after you. Because, I mean, whatever people may think about you or Matt Hancock, or, I mean, this is clearly in the public interest, is it not? I mean, where's the I mean, I think that? it's absolutely laughable to suggest that it isn't. It's just yeah. laughable. How mm. can you possibly suggest that we should not know how these profoundly important decisions were being taken of course we should know that so why 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 is i mean i mean kathy newman i've got a lot of things to say on but i won't please do <laughs> <laughs> well, she, i said it on twitter it's true her only discernible talent is to ask her relevant questions with a straight face and pretend like that she's doing something meaningful she didn't have a straight face she had a <laughs> face that was all about showboating and trying to look clever versus me you know and trying to make me look bad but um, anyway what, what's what a lot of journalists tried to do with you is to say you know you work for talk tv why did you publish with the telegraph it's for money it's for this it's for yeah. attention and look, Francis and I were having this discussion earlier today when we were sort of discussing how to handle the interview. And I, and I was sort of saying, I don't really care what your motivation is for releasing this information because the information is important. If you did it for money or for attention, I don't care. Yeah. And also people's, people's motivations are complex. People can be interested in the thing and themselves at the same time. And that's how life works usually. Sure. I mean, I think my motivations are pretty obvious. I mean, I was mm. a vocal critic of lockdown policy, mm. not from day one, because I, you know, we were talking earlier about the fact that I, that I think most of us went along with the first initial mm -hmm. lockdown, whatever it was, three weeks to flatten the sombrero or whatever it was we were told. <laughs> Um, but beyond that, I was a very vocal critic of it all. Um, so what could be more important if you're a journalist than getting to the truth of matters that, are, that matter to you and to huge numbers of people? It's not some niche thing worrying about how we responded to the pandemic. It's something that affects every single person to this day in different ways. So you know, my motivation in working with Matt Hancock in the first place mm was to get as close to the truth as I could. What better way than to work with him on his project? As it happened, I got rather more information than I expected. Mm. Uh, and in fairness to him, he, and I've said this many a time, he did lean towards disclosure. Not everything. I mean, you know, he's, it was his book after all. It was his truth. Um, but I didn't find him trying to deliberately, you know, to, to trying to cover up a load of stuff that... that he didn't want me to say. You I know. get the sense you feel sorry for him. Oh, wow. That's an interesting question. No, I don't feel sorry for him. And I'm certain he won't feel sorry for me. No, I don't um, imagine he will. But Yeah, no, but I want to be really fair here and mm. acknowledge the pressure that he was under, acknowledge the enormous sacrifices that he made. And, you know, he or his allies listening to this will probably say how nauseating she's sitting there saying that, having blown him up. Um, but you're asking me if I feel sorry for him. 
No, but I want to acknowledge that he is a person and he's he worked really, really, really bloody hard and he paid a very high price, personal mm. price. Francis, before you jump in, I should just say we'll do another five, ten minutes of chat and then uh, mm. send in your questions, Super Chats, PayPal's, and we'll uh, pick a, a bunch and ask Isabel uh, a few of them after the break in about five, ten minutes. Go for a minute. Do you think we have learned our lessons from COVID or, as there will be another pandemic, are we doomed to make the same mistakes all over again? Mm, I do really worry about what you pointed out earlier, which is a number of people who still want to be locked down. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and there are real worries too. Um, on the flip side, mm. that if another pandemic comes and it really is an absolute horror disease, not that COVID wasn't mm -hmm. for some people, I really have to emphasize, I've never said this isn't a hideous virus. And mm. I was quite scared of it at the beginning. Um, but the worry is, let's say we get something which is as deadly to people of all ages as, for example, Ebola. Mm -hmm. The worry now is that people will feel that they were duped by this government. Mm -hmm. And they were about a number of things. They will feel that they were laughed at and mocked and that the those making those decisions were not following themselves, which we know from so-called Partygate affair, and they will not go along with it next mm. time. Um, so that's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario is something, hopefully we don't get any more of these, but that's probably not realistic. There is, if there is another, in a dreadful event, there is another pandemic, people this time, and I don't mean um, those who aren't in a position to do anything about it, but those of us that have positions in which we can hold a government to account will ask more searching questions. Mm -hmm. And the politicians around them, our elected representatives, will not allow power to be seized by a small group of people who continually awarded themselves more extensions of power. Mm -hmm. uh, and that our elected representatives put up more of a fight or a challenge mm. to things that they feel aren't quite substantiated. One of the frustrations for me was the way protesters were treated in completely different ways. Mm. So you had the BLM protests, which happened yeah. during lockdown, yeah. and that happened, and everyone seemed to be fine with it. Yeah. And then you had anti-lockdown protesters. Yeah, and that and was obviously, you know, completely abhorrent, wasn't it? And not to be accepted and yeah. the police should be dispatched forthwith. Um, yeah. yeah, look, it was ever thus, double standards. <laughs> Isabel, on the BLM, I mean, people it's know... quite a lot about that in the messages, by the way. Has that already been released? Because I haven't seen those. Now you're because there's been a lot of coverage. Yes. Um, I think that there, there may still be some stuff to come on that area. Mm. Well, yeah. I was going to ask you about this because I have to say, look, whatever you think of BLM and people know what I think about it, that organization, yeah. that's fine, right? People can be pro, anti, whatever. That, for many people that I know, was the moment when they went, hold on a minute. Yeah, We've just been locked in our houses yeah. for three months. Yeah. And now, because there is a good cause, and you can believe it's a good cause, yeah. that's fine. Yeah, People are allowed to protest in their thousands, no masks, no yeah. social distancing yeah. in the streets of London, yeah. despite the lockdown that yeah. we still have in place. Yeah. What do we? What did we learn from your revelations about that moment? What were they saying? What, what was the conversation like? Well, you're now testing me because can't actually remember. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. There's so much stuff, yeah. um, you know, in, in this volume of material, which is sort of several sizes, times the size of the Bible. Um, it wasn't an area that I that Matt and I focused on okay. in his mm -hmm. book, but what I do remember very clearly uh, was the health secretary pushing the cabinet office to go further in terms of uh, not allowing public protests. And I think it ended up that you know maybe six people could kind of go along at very socially distance intervals mm -hmm. and make their their feelings known. Uh, I mean, I thought this was one of the most shocking aspects of the whole response to the pandemic. If we lose our fundamental right to protest, sorry, how are we any better than the worst of the dictatorships? Mm. I mean, that, that seems to me, if, if ordinary people cannot gather on a street or outside a, a politician's place of work and actually make their feelings known in the most direct and peaceful manner that we've always been allowed to do throughout modern history, we've lost pretty much everything, haven't we? 
Well, there were a number of cabinet ministers and government advisers who quite approved of the way China did things. Let's be brutally honest about it. So Yes, there were. I mean, here's looking at you, Jeremy Hunt. Mm. You know, the Chancellor now um, was one of the main people behind the scenes who was kind of pushing for a aspects of the very sinister Chinese response. I mean, I personally felt mandatory hotel quarantine uh, for which people were charged an absolutely disgraceful amount was an abhorrent thing. Um, and, you know, the government had to create very special laws in order to be able to do that, you mm. know, to force people into that type of accommodation, into, you know, single rooms in which they were kept for a week or two weeks or whatever it was and charged an absolute fortune for the benefit. I don't understand why anyone ever got themselves into a situation where they actually went into that mandatory mm. hotel quarantine at places like Heathrow and Gatwick. But you can only imagine that they must have been in dreadful circumstances for that to be upon them. And also as well, the glee with some of the jokes that were shared on the WhatsApp at the fact that these people had to pay such massive sums of money. And remember, it wasn't just that, that people were fleeced on, because I think they were fleeced. Mm -hmm. They were fleeced on all these absurd, repetitive COVID tests. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have a package, that hideous word, you know, making it sound as if you're getting something good <laughs> um, for your huge amount of you know massive profit margin for the companies involved you know the profit margins on those mandatory covid tests were grotesque they mm. were you know you go to other countries and they give it to you for virtually nothing have it processed in no time whatsoever and off you are off you go on your way here you had to pay 90 pounds for the benefit mm. of something telling you you were perfectly well as you likely knew you were to begin with Time and again, a COVID test before you left, a COVID test after you left, another one three days in, you know, honestly, absolute racket. Isabel, and let me ask you a party political question, because you described yourself earlier as a right of centre journalist. Mm. This was done by a Conservative Party. Mm. Uh, Conservatives mm. supposed to not want the government to interfere in people's lives too much and mm. just let them crack on with it. Pretty disillusioning, right? Well, mm. so where does that leave people like you? Well, I've never been a member of any political party. I, I think I'm a small C conservative. I'm not far right, as some people <laughs> like to claim you laugh. But honestly, I you know, had an article this morning that was absolutely outrageously defamatory. I had to get that taken down, describing me as a fascist. Mm. Um, you know, I don't even believe in capital punishment. I'm completely <laughs> liberal on some of these issues. Um, where does it leave us? I think it leaves us pretty despairing, actually. Mm. Um, I, I don't really want to get into party politics, but since you asked, I'd have to say the Reform Party, run by my partner Richard Tice, <laughs> is the only party I'm glad you declared that, that, that consistently opposed lockdown. Mm -hmm. uh, well, on that happy note, uh, why don't we have a quick break, uh, get some questions from our audience, and we'll uh, put them to you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you for submitting your questions. We're going to put them to Isabel, and then, of course, uh, we'll record a couple of bonus questions for those of you who are on Locals. You've already submitted your questions there. We'll do those afterwards. But for now, Francis, take it away. Absolutely. So the first question is from DC. Thank you very much, DC. And they ask, and they ask how do we ensure the fourth estate flourishes in the future? It is in decline with social media. Print, journal, print journalism is declining. Big tech supports governments to avoid regulation, regulation and run social media. It's a really good question. And for me, you know, I've been in print media for a really long time, since the late 90s. Mm. And I've watched investigative journalism in particular really decline. And the reason for that is because it's highly resource intensive. And often, mm. you know, if you are um, doing a kind of covert operation, it, it's very, very expensive, you know, you, and you it saps up resources for an uncertain outcome. Mm -hmm. now, there was a possibility, for example, with the Telegraph investigation, that the company could have put eight weeks of eight of its best reporters working full time on this project only for something completely out of the company's control, the news organization's control, to derail the investigation so mm -hmm. that it didn't get published, whether it was a successful injunction mm -hmm. by the government. Now, that's not totally out of the control of a, of a newspaper because you can make damn sure that you've got grounds for that not to happen. 
But, you know, who knows what could have happened? There could have been war breaking out somewhere or mm -hmm. all sorts of things, in which case the investment that a paper makes has been completely obliterated. So very diminishing number of organisations have these resources. Mm. Where the traditional papers have lost those resources, we see other organisations springing up, doing their own kinds of investigations. Mm. Often those may have some kind of political agenda, um, and you know you can argue about whether it is a, a good or a good a good or a bad thing that those investigations come out because they may be biased. Um, but what has been heartening about this operation that I've been involved in is that there are still traditional papers like the Telegraph, the Sunday Times, too, I have to say, that will put big resources into investigations in the overwhelming public interest. So all hope isn't gone, mm. um, but people need to continue buying newspapers or newspaper subscriptions. Otherwise, it does just narrow down to smaller organizations which are not kind of um, so easily uh, so easily scrutinized in terms of who funds them and what their agenda may be. And to be fair to The Guardian, they did some great work exposing Michelle Moan. I've no interest in being fair to The Guardian. So, uh, <laughs> I've never, ever been fair to me. So. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Nudge Wink Wink, however, with the fiver, uh, is very interested in being fair to you. And he says, please tell Isabel she has done a vital service for the country in releasing these messages. And thank you. Thank you. Uh, now... Um, Yes, this is a good question from someone whose name I will not read out. It says, uh, does Isabel have more messages that haven't been released yet? And we were talking in the break that there are going to be further. Yeah, so we've got some days left of this investigation. Um, I've also faced quite a few questions that have come through my Twitter mm. and on my website as to why we, we don't just release them all. Um, and there's a really good reason for that. And that is because they're full of private information that isn't in the public interest. Mm. I mean, most mm. of it by the way, is is pretty trivial, really trivial, actually. But it wouldn't be right to chuck out there a load of civil servants' names and addresses and telephone numbers and, you know, who they're going on a date with and what they thought of so-and-so. You know, the, the Telegraph has been meticulous at all times in their public interest threshold for inclusion of material. And that feels like the right thing to do. Shoving it all out there on the internet like some kind of you know, I don't know, irresponsible whistleblower uh, doesn't feel right to me. Mm. Uh, Marky Mark asks a question. Scientists are bad at politics. Politicians are mostly terrible at scientists. At science, sorry. Journalists are mostly awful at science, We're too. We're very bad at maths as well. <laughs> <laughs> I've just noticed that over the years. So how do we provide any credible form of narrative with that being the case? Hmm, good question. And how are journalists not taken advantage of by clever scientists mm. and other clever people? Because in some ways, I think um, that is part of the, is and was part of the problem, you know, in those lobby briefings during the pandemic, where we had Chris Whitty, very eminent, hugely knowledgeable, uh, talking to a bunch of journalists like myself that don't have the knowledge, you know, specialised knowledge to come back. Um, that is, that is uh, there's a sort of inbuilt flaw to that, a structural flaw, I suppose. Mm. I mean, what, what you could say in, in the context of a pandemic, I think that there needs to be um, a much a sort of more carefully constructed group of advisors. Mm -hmm. It's not for journalists. We're never going to make us all scientific experts. Mm. But I think what went wrong, one of the key things that went wrong during the pandemic, and this is on uh, Matt Hancock and the people around him, was the suppression of information and the smearing of dissenters. Including um, scientists, by the way, really, Sinetra Gupta, Jay Bhattacharya, etc. I'm sorry, I really think that was grotesque. Yes, you know, was. these people that came up with an alternative way mm. of dealing with the virus should have been respected, they should have been listened to. They were very, very distinguished figures that led that so-called Barrington Declaration, mm. the kind of prospectors for how things could be done differently and they were utterly vilified and the government used every tool it had to vilify and discredit and undermine those people mm. and those people paid a really high price in career terms in personal terms and i think that that was appalling disgraceful shameful 
and it should never happen again. Mm, I agree. Uh, this is a bit of a weird question from Nick, I, so feel free to ignore it. Uh, he says, Matt Hancock just did an, recently did an interview with Good Morning Britain where he repeatedly posited that there would be another pandemic. Yeah. Do you know why he's sort of persuaded about that? I think what you're, the person who's asked that question is getting at is, mm. Does he have some secret knowledge yes, that perhaps. another pandemic is coming? Right. And I, I don't know if he has any secret knowledge, but I'm going to say almost certainly not. Mm -hmm. um, I think that what he is saying is that the way um, our world is now, so very interconnected with so much global movement at all times, mm -hmm. uh, that it's highly likely that there will be some other virus something else that is like covid mm. hopefully not a lot worse but you'd be a fool to sit here and say well i don't think that's going to happen again which is why it's so urgent i said it's just a bit out. of flu everyone needs to calm down didn't well, work out that well i think a way. lot of people said that actually. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so and this is a really interesting question from mr steve and he mm. says isabel thank you very much for how long roughly Will the paper, The Telegraph, be publishing the lockdown files in brackets? I need to budget. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, we all need to budget. Uh, budget time apart from anything else. Mm. Look, I think it's really important with any newspaper kind of expose like mm. this that you don't flog it forever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've got to quit while you're ahead. You've got to know when's the time that you've, you know, you've made the case mm -hmm. and the Telegraph was not trying to make the case. Probably I was a bit, but the Telegraph is just about putting the information out there. Um, but you don't want to to kind of squeeze it for every pip, I don't think. You've got to maintain in any journalistic endeavour, um, you know, your, your quality. Mm -hmm. So I think the paper will keep running it for as long as, as the paper thinks that there is material there that is in very strong public interest. And after that, you know, sometimes stories... As we've already seen, they have a life of their own. You know, it depends where the politics of this goes. It depends whether could there, for example, be any kind of prosecutions. Uh, I'm not saying that there should be, uh, but there are certainly plenty of people who still want accountability for what happened. I don't personally feel the need for, you know, for blood. I don't feel mm -hmm. I don't feel that gets us anywhere. But I do understand the visceral kind of anger amongst people who suffered so profoundly, perhaps people who's who were forced to say goodbye to loved ones over iPads. I mean this this is just just beyond And we have many people write in to, to make that very point. You know, when when you have an audience of people who can yeah. write directly in, yeah. you hear a lot of stories. And yeah, and these, those are the stories policies, that have come to me. Yeah. Yeah. And the, these policies had a real impact on people. So you can understand why they're angry. And I do agree with you going out for blood is not what we want. But what I think people do want is, as we talked about earlier, making sure this never happens again in the same way. And that's what I want. You yeah. know, if people ask, do I have an agenda? Yes, my agenda is that never again does our country, and I don't I hope no other country does it either, go down this route in such a, an ill-informed, cack-handed, and at times deeply sinister fashion. Well, we'll ask a, a couple more and then we will wrap up. Uh, June Hope uh, says, is there anything that you'll be releasing? And again, this may be testing your memory after a long couple yeah, of weeks. Yeah. Uh, anything about the sacking of uh, carers who refused to uh, to get vaccinated? Uh, there's some 40,000, Yeah, really good question. I mean, I know that there is material in the WhatsApps about that, mm. about whether or not that policy would be sustainable. In fact, very early on in the messages, and this is actually in Matt's book, so I can talk about it quite freely, um, you know, he puts on record that he actually believes it should be mandatory to have the flu jab if you work in the NHS. Um, and he was saying that, you know, he had hoped to make to implement that policy had it not been for the coronavirus coming in and, you know, obviously distracting him with a much bigger problem. So, you know, that's what he wanted to do. It might still happen under another leader who felt another leader of the health service who felt the same way. Uh, I remember that there are conversations about whether or not it was a good idea and whether or not essentially they could get away with doing it. And certainly the words get away with it are not used. That's <laughs> me paraphrasing yeah. it. Um, that was a big call, mm. you know, to attempt to mandate vaccination. Um, Matt Hancock had no qualms about that. He vociferously 
vociferously defended that as a as a policy. Um, he always argued that if you are putting yourself into a setting where people are vulnerable, then the very least you can do is is make sure that you're not unwittingly making them sicker and, and more unhealthy. I happen to profoundly disagree with that. I think it's it crosses a line for me. Mm-hmm. And the policy was a disaster and they had to abandon it. It was. Uh, do you I, want to do a couple more? Uh, I thought we would. No, 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 there's we a couple go, more? Yeah, there's a couple okay. more. Uh, Dynamite Rabbit, great name, says, <laughs> Courageous guest, great interview, best channel on earth. Couldn't oh, agree great. more. <laughs> do you think... Uh, <laughs> it's just, a, it's just a, a friendly comment to say thank you. But Lady Sarcastro did ask a question, which is, so far we've heard about Gove, Hancock and Case. Does Isabel think there will be more people being exposed as complicit in, she says, lying, but let's say deceiving the public just to not get sued? Yeah, really good question. Um, I mean, you know, we... There was a, a sort of um, question mark at the beginning of this operation about whether you could cover the stories on a kind of person by person basis, because that's how the WhatsApps came to me, you know, under names of individuals. Uh, but actually, I think doing it thematically has worked really, really well. Uh, and I, I don't quite know how to answer that question. But if if the, the questioner is asking, are there more people who are, we're about to expose have done truly dreadful things? then I think broadly the answer to that is probably no. Okay. Isabel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming on the show. If people want to find out more about you and your work, where is the best place to do that? Well, there is a website. Um, and also, <laughs> I, I did check my Wikipedia and was wanting to update it and found that it's now, so many people have tried to do good and bad things oh. to my Wikipedia <laughs> yep. page. So it's now protected, which ah. means that only moderators can uh, can change it. So go to my website, isabelloakeshot.co.uk. Fantastic stuff. Thanks for coming on. We're going to ask you a couple of questions that go behind a paywall. But for now, thank you. And thank you guys for watching and listening. Join our locals if you want to hear that bonus content. Thanks for being here live with us. Uh, Take care and have yourselves a great morning, evening, or afternoon, wherever you are. And remember, if you want your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.